Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. But Jesus said the single most defining characteristic of his church should be love. He told his disciples in John 13, 35, that your love for each other is how the world will recognize that you belong to me and I am in you. Our love for each other, not our perfection, but our love for one another within all of our sins and imperfections is how the world knows Jesus is in us. And that's what Paul explores next in the section of Romans that we've been working our way through. In the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul describes the gospel through all of these incredible things God has done. Uh, And now in Romans 12, in the last few chapters of Romans, Paul begins to apply those truths in our lives in really intensely practical ways. Here Paul is letting us know that what our love looks like is a really big thing. And he begins by talking about what it looks like with other Christians, and then he also talks about what it looks like especially in relation to our enemies. He starts this way, verse 9, chapter 12. He says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Some really strong words in there. This word sincere means the absence of hypocriticalness, meaning we are not to be phony. We're not to be nice on the outside and then despising someone on the inside. We're not to be people who live with a veneer of, uh, of politeness, but then gossip and, and produce prejudice on the backside. It's almost like it reminds me of SNL's church lady. You remember the spoof on SNL of the uptight, smug, holier-than-thou TV host who'd interview guests with, Christian, uh, with a Christian nice veneer, and then she would uh, throw judgment at them behind the scenes. We all loved it. It was all funny, but it was also character that actually portrayed some of the hypocrisy that is sometimes a part of Christians' lives in the church that we all have to struggle to not have. So love is to be sincere, Paul says. It's to be authentic. So how do we love without hypocrisy when some people are really annoying and hurtful, demeaning? When do we act with politeness and when do we share our true feelings? I think this is a a really hard question for us all to wrestle with. Paul's saying a lack of sincerity also means that you avoid dealing with truth and confronting problems. Paul goes on to say that we are to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. So the things God calls evil we can't just gloss over. But we also have to cling to, to be inseparable with what God calls as good. And that is difficult. Maybe even more so in our today's world because our culture, in our culture, love looks all too often like nice and not confronting. It's not really a relationship or a community if no one will rock the boat and say things that may make others feel not safe from time to time. We see it a lot in our culture, but we also see it in parenting. In parenting, we give in and don't set our boundaries too often with our kids because we don't like to see them cry. Who likes to see their kids cry? Yet we know that without truth and following through on that truth and boundaries and discipline, even if it's not comfortable, it will lead to disaster in our kids' lives. 
We cannot love well without also hating what is evil. See, God knows the way our souls were designed, and when we don't follow God's laws or his truth, it goes badly for us. So real love is concerned about truth. So if we're not willing to confront, it actually may reveal that we're kind of selfish because we'll stay silent instead of risk, risking, to losing, uh, uh, risking losing someone's affection or respect. And that's not love. That's actually loving yourself more than them. It's protecting yourself more than them and making yourself feel comfortable at the cost of someone else. And usually it's someone you say you care about. Any love that cuts corners morally and fails to confront is not really love at all. See, real love means we love enough to be real and honest and straightforward. Rebecca Pippert writes this. She says, think of how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. Love that's sincere talks about the truth. Now, how we talk about that truth is a whole other discussion, right? Paul goes on to describe what love looks like. He says, be devoted to one another in love. The word love here is the word, Greek word Philadelphia from which we get Philadelphia and the word the city of brotherly love. We're to be devoted to a loving family, the body of Christ. And again, for some of us, that's difficult because our families weren't so loving and, and, and that, that's kind of a hard concept for us to deal with. But Paul is talking about a healthy family love. In healthy families, when someone has a problem, you don't give up on them. It's just like if your child has issues at school and gets suspended, you don't say to them, you're gone, you're kicked out of the house, get out of here. I mean, at times, you may, you may want to say that, but you don't, right? Because you're devoted to them. Family is family. We'll talk later about boundaries and exceptions to this, but overall, Paul is describing that the goal for the body of Christ should look like the love within a nuclear family, a group of people who are committed to walk through this life together with one another, to help take on each other's problems and even to help walk through financial difficulties with each other. Even if one is rude, we still reach out, right? You don't love only when you get loved back in a family. This is a huge value we have at Quest. We want to keep working our way to where church is not something we go to, but a family we belong to. Someone once said, relationship with the church should be like a family. You should show up for family dinner, not because you like what's on the menu, but just because it's family. Paul goes on to describe love saying this. He says, honor one another above yourselves. Honor means to treat someone as if they're valuable and precious. We get that, right? We do that because each person is created in the image of God. One of the distinctive features of of the other church was that honor was shown to all people. This was even more significant in that time because it was such a a hierarchy-based culture. The church became the only place in that culture where every human being, whether rich or poor, male or female, native or immigrant, were treated with honor. All people were equal because they were a child of God. And that was incredibly attractive. The church valued those who no one else valued. Paul goes on to describe love further, saying, Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. 
See, he's saying real love includes action. We give and we practice hospitality. Remember, hospitality in the Bible is defined as love of strangers. We give, we share our homes, our money, the things with, that we have with those in need. It's one of the reasons we do end Poverty Plus. And, 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 and through our just simple donation of a few thousand dollars in expenses, we get to have the opportunity to leverage that to tens of thousands of dollars impact. And relationships are built through that event. Before we read more, think about these questions. How do you react when someone disappoints you or lets you down or treats you unfairly or unjustly? Are you a fight person or are you a flight kind of person? How many of you would say, I'm more of a fight person? I'm the one when I'm offended, I tend to power up. I I let it be known that it's not okay. I defend myself. And how many of you would say, I'm the flight person? When others offend me and hurt me, I get quiet, I pull away, I withdraw, I avoid. See, Paul and the people he's writing to know what it's like to be treated unjustly, unfairly, to be demeaned. They know what it's like to have conflict in marriage and business and relationships and and conflict with Rome as the, the time he's writing this persecution is picking up. In fact, Paul would be executed less than seven years after he writes this letter to the Romans. And some of the people he's writing to would have already been fed to the lions by then. They know conflict and what it was like to be treated unfairly. So what was Paul's counsel to them? Let's read verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. And maybe, maybe we define what low position means by those who we disagree with, those who we think are crazy and making bad decisions. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you... Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome, uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So let's, uh, we're just a second here, we're going to take a moment to compare what Paul says to Jesus on this topic. I mean, most of the great religions in the world share ethical ground, right? They all have uh, uh, rules against killing and murder and stealing. They all tend to value telling the truth and showing mercy. And yet Jesus showed a radical love ethic that you don't see in other religions, And you can tell Paul is echoing Jesus' words when he writes this. Listen to how Jesus shared how we are to deal with those who treat us unfairly. Luke 6. But to you who are listening, I say, this is Jesus saying this, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. So it's really easy for us to admire Jesus' words. Many people do, but it seems a little unrealistic when we read stuff like this to follow through in real life. And many have actually been misled by this passage, thinking that Jesus wants us to be okay with just being walked all over, being mistreated, to never stop anybody from mistreating us, to just be doormats. 
But Jesus is not saying that we become a doormat. Because it is in that same context, Jesus is actually denouncing injustice and calling for godly people to have a passion for justice. So let's look at the image Jesus gives and think about it a little bit more. Someone slapping you on the cheek is not about taking you out. If they're going to do that, they're going to do it closed fist and they're going to punch you, right? If someone slaps you, it's more about insulting you. It's personally shaming you. So let's go back to the question. How do you react when someone disappoints you or lets you down or treats you unfairly? Are you the fight person or the flight person? Oftentimes there are two basic responses we have to, uh, to, to uh, injustice. We either become vindictive or we tend to become passive. If we're the fight person, when we get slapped on the cheek, we strike back. We get vengeful. We want to rub their noses in it make them feel as bad as we felt. If we're the flight person, when we get slapped on the cheek, we just keep getting slapped on the cheek and we don't do anything to, do, to, to change the matter. We don't speak up. We don't confront. We, don't, we just take it. Some of us use a bit of a combination, but it's kind of, a, it's kind of a, almost a bipolar combination of vindictive passive. We take the slapping on the cheek and we do it for a long time and then all of a sudden we explode and we blow up. It may look like the husband who takes the fight response and then apologizes to his wife and saying, oh, honey, I'm so sorry, I've blown up. Many, uh, I've done this so many times over the years, but every time I do, you just say, so you stay so calm. How do you do it? And she says, oh, it's easy. Whenever you blow up, I just go and clean the bathroom and scrub the toilet. And he kind of shocked. He says, and that helps? Oh, yeah, because I always use a toothbrush. <laughs> Vindictive or passive approaches don't work and are not what Jesus or Paul was telling us to do. By the way, in the first service, I asked Wendy if she's ever done it to me, and she shrugged. So I don't know. Maybe she has. We're not to be vindictive or be doormats getting walked on. We're passionate for justice without being vindictive or vengeful. So here's an example. Maybe a father was yelling at the adult daughter in this example, and and she's listening for a time, and then she says, you know what? I've told you before that I'm not going to allow you to talk to me like that. I want you to know I care about you and I love you and and I want to have a good relationship with you, but unless we can talk differently, I'm going to walk out and and we're not going to talk until we can have a, a reasonable conversation. So in that example, she didn't just take it. She wasn't allowing herself to passively get mistreated over and over again, thinking, hey, he's just dad and he's going to go on his tirade. Nor was she vindictive, saying, Dad, you bleepity bleep bleep, I've had it with you, I'm giving up on you, you're gone, you're done, we're done. She's not vindictive or passive. She had her boundaries. She let him know her desire was for a relationship. She wasn't going to allow him to sin against her with this aggression. See, it's not the best for you or for them if you allow someone to just repeatedly sin against you without ever dealing with it. She gave her dad the opportunity to start again with a new foot. She's not saying she trusts him, but she's saying if he's willing to change, if he's willing to be different, she's open and wanting to have a conversation or relationship that values both truth and justice. See, Paul summarizes how we deal with our enemies by saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with 
good. This word overcome is a military term meaning to overpower. We're in a battle with evil in the world. There's a way to win and a way to lose. Evil can be done to you, and the evil done to you can cause evil to grow inside you. If we repay evil with evil, we will lose the battle with evil. We can't fight evil with evil. Tolkien's The Lord of the Ring illustrates this really well. When any good person used the ring of the evil Lord Sauron, that good person would become evil in the process. Meaning any kind of victory achieved in the wrong way would not be victory, but it would be defeat. Because those who are good became evil to beat evil. Evil then wins. I think Martin Luther King Jr. put it best when he said this, Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. The only way to defeat evil is by doing good to the one who has done you harm. In other words, if you hate a person who has wronged you, that person has won because you reinforce to them that you are worthy of being hated as well. Now we get it. There are people who are easy to hate, right? Just go to the news. You see it hate everywhere. The battle is real. Yet Paul, during all of the persecution and conflict, tells us the only way to defeat the evil is to forgive and love the person. So pause for a moment. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? See, I think there are many today who may say, if you forgive, well, you're not going to win over, win over injustice. That forgiving is wimpy. Many today seem to be saying, if you're someone who's been oppressed or abused, you should not forgive because you have to stay connected to your anger and rage. And yet Jesus would say, you have to get in touch with your anger or you won't be able to forgive. But getting in touch with your anger is not the end goal. The only way to really win is to forgive. Again, Amalekia embraced this when he said, forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. It means, rather, that the evil act no longer remains as a barrier to the relationship. Forgiveness is a catalyst creating the atmosphere necessary for a fresh start and a new beginning. We're going to delve more into this point, but first let's finish off hearing what Paul tells us about the fight against evil. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. When people have wronged you, it's common to want to avoid them. That can be godly, a godly wise choice in certain circumstances, but Paul is telling us not to avoid or cut off people who are difficult just because we don't want to be around them and we don't want to pay them or because we don't want to pay them back by avoiding them. Another translation says, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. All that you can, everyone. Strong words. It's interesting, if you do a quick search on the internet of how to be happy, you come up with lots of articles that suggest that the way to be happy is to put yourself around positive people. And sure, we don't want all the people around us to be difficult. We need positive people in our lives. But the articles tend to promote, especially the more recent ones, the attitude that if people get difficult, delete them, replace them, cancel them. What that mindset 
tells you to do is if you have someone in your small group that says thoughtless things, leave the group and find a new one. If someone at work doesn't respect your beliefs, avoid them. If you feel ostracized from culture, withdraw into a Christian bubble and surround yourself only with people you feel safe and comfortable with. And if you're married to someone you don't like, or if you have a friend who you don't like, you can cut the people off and withdraw from them in the relationship. That may mean divorce, or maybe it'll just mean giving them the the cold shoulder, the silent treatment. You can be with them, but not really be with them. You may think that's the right thing to do, and you're following what Paul is saying when he says, live at peace with everyone, but that's not at all what Paul is saying when he says, do all that you can to live at peace with everyone. Because Paul is saying, pursue relationship. Overcome evil with actions of goodness. Do not take revenge, he says, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, when you give the silent treatment, you're just saying, you're not even worthy of a relationship with me, much less my thought or attention. You're not worthy, is the message you're sending. See, the gospel is all about God-loving people who are difficult to love, who are not worthy. And we are to follow the ways of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit to become more like him. And one of the key things we try to help people understand, for for instance, in premarital counseling, is a major purpose of marriage is to help you learn how to love difficult people. When you're engaged, you think, well, there's no way this person I adore is going to be difficult. And then you get married, and after a while, it's, you know... See, God is using you to help teach your spouse how to love difficult people, you difficult person, and vice versa. Because no one is going to see your sin more deeply and clearly than your marriage partner. And only in that environment are you able to be helped to grow and mature in love and care and as a person. See, Paul isn't telling us our best friends need to be all those who are difficult. Yet to love sincerely means we don't try to be a kind of peace where we just withdraw or avoid anyone who bothers us or offends us. And we don't give the silent treatment thinking that's peace. Paul's also not saying we are to stay in an abusive relationship. You are not to remain in an unsafe situation where you were exploited. It brings back the point of what he said earlier. Detest what is evil and cling to what is good. Staying in a abusive relationship is not detesting what is evil, and it is not clinging to what is good. Allowing someone to continue to do that evil is not right. The good you can do for them is to separate to safety and stay away from them in that moment. We just have to determine our motive in staying away and determine is it because of protection and wisdom, which is the right reason, or is we staying away as revenge or payback? If you are being abused in a relationship, I want to just speak to you just for a moment. Call our counseling center, Thrive. Call the domestic violence hotline. Get help. Get resources. Be safe. doesn't mean your marriage needs to end. It means you need to get to be safe and you need to get help. So let's explore how to practically walk out what Paul and Jesus are telling us. The only way to defeat evil is to forgive and love the person. 
Forgiveness costs a lot. To say I forgive you is painful and costly. When we were younger, it wasn't as big a deal because when we said I forgive you, it was usually a sibling who took a toy, right? It wasn't a really big deal. But as we walk through life more and we experience more painful experiences, it becomes much harder for us to say I forgive you. I think we know forgiveness has destructive qualities that puts, puts, you know, puts us in bondage if we don't forgive. We've all heard the, the phrase unforgiveness is like drinking poison yourself and waiting for the other person to die, right? But even so, we still can be reluctant to forgive, even when we know that unforgiveness ties us to that person that we haven't forgiven. It's hard to get motivated to forgive. I mean, I wish I could choose to forgive all the time because I'm a loving, caring person, but I know when I'm hurt and angry, I often choose to do the work of forgiveness because I know I don't want to get hardened and bitter and self-protective. That's no way to live. The Bible is clear about when we hold on to unforgiveness, there's a blockage between us and God and it destroys relationships with others as well. Some people just seem to, at times it seems like some people have an easier time forgiving and maybe it's their nature and others find it harder to, more difficult to forgive because of what they've lived through. Maybe they experience that any time... They approached the idea of forgiveness that was used against them. Maybe they've never seen anger used appropriately, and so it's really hard to deal with the pain of, of, of approaching forgiveness. So they avoid it. And isn't that one of the challenges we face in our faith? God keeps inviting us to do things that put us out of our comfort zone. Just they're not comfortable. They take us to the edge to help us grow. We may not want to forgive, but we can ask God for help. And sometimes, honestly, we have to ask him for help to just even want to begin. Because sometimes I feel like a huge mountain to have to climb over is is just saying, God, help me, I can't do this. I don't even know how to get myself to want to do this. We get to remind ourselves in that moment how much Jesus has forgiven us and learn to forgive and love in the same way Jesus loves us. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, we are not loved because we are lovely or because we have made ourselves worthy of love. We are loved because Jesus died for us when we were unattractive in order to make us attractive. See, forgiveness is a vital key to loving sincerely. Yet in the church, I think sometimes we push forgiveness before it's time. We may have to remember forgiveness is a process that needs to unfold and there are numerous steps to it, numerous processes to get there. Sometimes there needs to be work done personally before someone is even ready to have the conversation of forgiveness. There may be working through grief and the consequences of what happened before we can ever get to that forgiveness moment. If we push too quickly for forgiveness... We tend to go back into that silent about the real issues stuff and we can do harm and we don't get the power and the beauty that can come from going through the process of of forgiving. See, the first step in in the forgiveness process is to identify the hurt, to name the wrong, to say this was bad. It needs to be named what it is and that it is sinful. When we don't do this step, 
there tends to be a lack of closure because we never deal with the truth. We just kind of gloss it over with this, will you forgive me? Yes, and walk on. There's no more to it. That's not forgiveness. See, I think we see this in big, big and small ways. In the U.S., we've tr- I think we struggle greatly with forgiveness. We see it in the racial reconciliation and Me Too movements right now in our culture. The pains have been so deep and so long-standing, so layered that it takes time, I think, to understand before forgiveness can be given and received. I think some of us just wish we could move on to forgiveness more quickly and be done with it. But for others, they don't yet feel heard. And we have to be careful not to rush this step. I think it may help us to not rush it by separating forgiveness and reconciliation. They're not the same thing. Sometimes we think if we forgive, we have to reconcile. And that may not possibly be the wise thing that happens. God may open up the opportunity for reconciliation if the person is willing, but forgiveness does not require the other person's involvement at all even necessarily. It's something that happens within us. We release that person and what they've done to us. We are no longer holding them to account for what they've done. We've released the offense and them to God Vengeance is his, right? And mercy is his as well. See, reconciliation requires a willingness on both parties' parts. When both people and groups of people understand and value each other's perspective, only then can reconciliation begin to happen. Within that understanding, there has to be a clear identification of how you wronged me and how I wronged you. That leads to clarity on what we can do to move forward in the relationship. So what would make our relationship right on both sides? It's kind of a key question of this whole process. We get to a place where we feel right with each other and with God. Sometimes a relationship, though, is so beyond repair that reconciliation is just frankly not possible. You can do forgiveness, but you can't assume there's going to be an ongoing relationship after that because the relationship still may be toxic. It may not be safe or trustworthy. But loving well, forgiving fully is critical, but it's not easy. Forgiveness is easier when we remember we don't have to do this on our own power, and we remember it's a process where we can trust God is working under the surface even when we can't see it, even when we can't feel it. It's not all up to you and me to walk this alone. You walk it with God, and you walk it with your small group friends, the people in your life. So how can we walk this out this week? Well, I don't know. I think some of us are probably feeling like we need to give forgiveness to somebody. We've been holding on to unforgiveness. So maybe a good question for you to ask yourself is, what part of the process are you in? Have you just avoided it and not dealt with it, or have you actually processed the pain it's cost you? And have you grieved that and done that well? Maybe it's identifying what someone's sin has cost you. Choosing to not avoid might be another thing. Maybe you've been avoiding it and you've already processed it, but you still want to avoid it. So choosing not to avoid or cut someone off, but talk directly to them and plan it and do it in a way that you're neither vindictive nor passive. Maybe you know that you need to ask more fully for forgiveness. Maybe that's another application 
and understand more of what your actions cost someone you sinned against. So maybe your action point this week is to take the time to listen, to ask them, what did this cost you? What pain did I create for you? What distrust did I create in your life? And afterward, name the sin and ask for forgiveness. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, we believe that the Holy Spirit is pursuing you and drawing you, and you're, you're in some way probably aware of that already, and he's coming to you to draw you to truth and love. Take a moment right now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, and just ask the Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? Where do I need forgiveness in order to begin to restore relationship with you, Jesus, or others? And God, where are you wanting to heal me from the wrongs that have been done against me by helping me forgive? Would you stand with me as we pray? Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would just come over this room and with anybody who's listening online, that you would just meet us right where we're at right now, that you would come into our hearts and our minds, that you would give us the thoughts, the feelings, the emotions, the, the, the memories that we need, that you want us to process, that you want us to discover more fully your forgiveness for us, and that where you want us to discover more fully the freedom of being loving enough to love our enemies and give Give, give forgiveness. Would you come and bring that freedom to us? And Lord, even as we turn our hearts to you and worship through this song, declaring how amazing and awesome you are, Lord, we receive your presence and ask that you would continue to guide our thoughts and our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name. Amen. May you go with the knowledge that you are sons and daughters of God. May you go with the knowledge that you are forgiven. And the Holy Spirit is with you to love your enemies, to bring forgiveness and change and grace and mercy wherever you go. God bless. Have a great week. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.